Hello and welcome back to HIF Player, the podcast from Harrogate International Festivals. You are joining with audiences from across the globe to enjoy HIF Player, bringing Harrogate International Festivals into your home. We're thrilled to bring you Bowen Salon North, Harrogate's very own TED Style Talks, sponsored by Bowen Solicitors. In a time of polarised debate, Bowen Salon North gives you the time and space to learn from the experts and make up your own mind. Sit back, relax and enjoy an insightful and entertaining talk from our expert guest speaker, Melanie Challenger, exploring what makes us human, recorded live as part of Berwyn's Salon North. I'm going to do a little experiment now. Just bear with me, everyone. That is the sound of my heartbeat, live. That's what you're listening to, is a very fast heart rate, because I feel like I'm under threat. I'm obviously not actually stood in front of a load of lions, and yet my body is acting as though it's going through some sort of major threat, despite the fact that I'm looking out on lots of lovely faces. And I'm not alone in having that kind of reaction. So if I decided I'm going to just take the microphone on the spot, pick one of you lot, get you up onto stage, and tell us to get you to recite a poem. Like, even if I just sort of wandered um, close to you, you'd probably find your heartbeat would speed up, right? Even probably just the thought of it right now is making one or two of you nervous, because you're thinking, is she going to go and do that? So we, we react in a really similar way. So our heartbeats speed up, our breathing rate speeds up. And we get shaky. Look, you can see I'm shaking. And we might need to go to the toilet, the pre-show shit. You might need, <laughs> you might need to um, suddenly think through whatever it is. Why am I here? I don't even know anymore. You, you lose your thought, train of thought, all of these sorts of things. Um, the odd thing about this kind of reaction, because this is caused by stress hormones flooding our bodies, um, cortisol, epinephrine in particular, that's what causes that kind of reaction. The odd thing is, is that when you listened to my heartbeat, you were affected too. So when we all listen to an elevated heart rate like that, it arouses us, it excites us at some level. So, and we exploit this as well with our pop songs, so I'll, I'll, I'll demonstrate this. This is Paul Vandermark. Let you wait until... Can you hear the heartbeat? I missed a beat there, didn't I? And it's not just fast heart rates. So fast heart rates excite us and arouse us our attention, but slow heart rates do the opposite. So when we listen to a lovely relaxed heartbeat, you know, a resting pulse of a relaxed person, that calms us down. And if we listen and exploit that in, let's say, classical music, that calms us down as well. So what am I going on about? Well, the reason for all of this is because we're animals. Hands up in the room who thinks we're an animal. Well, there's a few who are reluctant. OK, fine. I'm going to try and convince you that's not true. Most of us think that we're animals. And yet, throughout history, in fact, 
in most societies around the world, in one way or another, we've thought that we're not really animals, not in our most crucial ways. And I'm going to try and convince you now that that's not true and try and show you why I think we struggle with the idea that we're animals. So the kind of animal we are is a hierarchical group-living primate. I know we don't often think about ourselves in those sorts of terms, but that's what we are. Um, so not all animals will live in groups. Some are solitary. But we're a group-living animal, and the reason for that is because it, it brings enormous survival benefits for us to be in a group. Lots of animals come into groups in one way or another. You can have greater access to mates, greater access to resources, and crucially, you get protection from predators. Um, as a consequence of that kind of... I mean, a lot, a, a lot that we think about... Um, comes from that kind of group dynamic. So if you think about some of the most crucial feelings that we have, embarrassment and fear and shame and loneliness, they all derive from the fact that we are a group-living animal. It's in, it matters to us enormously that we can be with one another, and we gain enormous amounts of reassurance from being with one another. But of course, groups aren't only about the sorts of benefits that they confer. There's also lots of negative aspects to being in a group. We're in a group because it will enable us to survive. But within the group, you also get competition, obviously the risk of, of conflict and aggression, both intergroup and intra-group, so within the group and between the groups. Um, and pathogens spread much more easily within a group, of course, and we're living through that right now. So, the more animals that are living together, the higher the chance that pathogens will move between them. And, and that can affect us in how we relate to strangers, for instance. Now, I'm going to say something super gross now, but imagine after this that we go into the bathroom and someone hasn't flushed that toilet. Most of us will react in an almost identical way and we'll do an identical facial expression. We'll go, Ehh. and we give this a name, we call it disgust. And the reason for that is that is a pathogen response. So we're responding to the fact that we could be coming into contact with a pathogen. So there are things about being an animal that we can see very clearly with group dynamics that are very threatening to us. Now, um, if we think about predator avoidance or um, all of the benefits that you get from being in a group or those sorts of fears of pathogens, in the end, what it is that we're ultimately trying to avoid is death. Now, human beings, you know, we are extraordinary. We have this exceptional form of cognition. But what that means is that we can think about the kinds of animal threats that I've been talking about any day of the week. So 24-7, we could think about a death of someone dear to us from 20 years ago, and we can imagine our death the following day. And that kind of awareness of dangers, and in particular death, makes us a uniquely fearful animal. And it's those fears that help us to start to understand why it is that we have... Can I have a glass of water? Sorry, I'm really thirsty. Why it is that we have been frightened of being an animal and struggled with the idea of it through time. This is a classic fear response, by the way getting a dry mouth. I'm dreadful for getting a dry mouth. I hope I'm not going to trigger anybody here, but 
We've got a picture here. This is where I'm going to try and convince you how it is that we've thought of ourselves not really as animals. So this is a memento mori picture from the Victorian era. So the Victorian era, obviously, we struggled to get to the age of 10 um, in some parts of the world. So death was a very normal part of people's life, but that didn't make it something that was easy for people. The extraordinary thing about this picture is, obviously, this is kind of um, early photography, so it's long exposure. So you can see the mother and the father who are alive are all blurred and look kind of ghost-like. But the daughter who's between them, who's recently died, and who they have posing for this memento mori picture, is perfectly crystal clear in her death. And the reason for that is that living beings minutely move all the time. But of course, when they're dead, they're perfectly still, which is why in those old Victorian photos, the dead were clearer than the living. Now, this is something that's been remarked on throughout history. We've been able to see, so if anybody's been with um, a dead loved one or um, has witnessed a dead individual, you know that they are smaller in death than they appeared in life. And again, that's because there were fewer of those sorts of movements uh, that mark out the living. And so they seem smaller. And it's, it's not surprising then that throughout history, we have really, it has really looked when you faced with the dead like something has flown, and that what we have left behind is the animal part of us, that the vessel, the earthen vessel, if you like, has been left behind and something has flown. This idea that we are split between an animal and a spiritual part, a physical and a non-physical part of us, is found throughout the world so, and throughout history. If you think of indigenous, animistic uh, cultures, you have what in philosophy is called the substance dualism, so this idea that, that we are split between a, a two parts, two different substances, the physical and the non-physical. In animistic traditions, this other half, this spiritual part of us, uh, of a living being, is, is thought to be shared throughout, throughout the, uh, with, with all other beings. So everything is ensouled, if you like. Um, what we find happening through history, I'm going to give you a bit of a beggared potted history now, but, but what we find happens through history is that once we arrive, let's say, let's dip in at Aristotle, you have something sort of quasi-animistic in a way, in that you have the three souls, the vegetal soul and the animal soul and then the rational soul. And there's sort of the beginnings of a hierarchy, so the rational soul that we possess. Um, is sort of seen in a hierarchy, with the vegetal soul being the least. But everything was still kind of ensouled. But then once you get to, say, Aquinas and the th sort of theological arguments going on um, in the monotheistic belief systems, the rest is certainly plants have not got a soul at this point in time. And fewer and fewer of the animals can be thought about in this way, and in fact, you start to get a very sharp delineation with only human beings having this spiritual, non-animal substance. Animals are now just animals, and humans are not quite animals. They're somewhere between the angels and the earth. Once you get, again, another big shift, once we get into the birth of empiricism and uh, thinkers like, well, beforehand Descartes, but once you get into the Enlightenment, thinkers like John Locke. What starts, I, I like to think of it as a strange sort of migration. The soul kind of migrates just up into the brain. 
and we start to get the idea that this spiritual special part of us is our cognitive capacities, our conscious being, our personhood, our free will, our reason, our rationality, our moral capacity. And this is how we end up now. I mean, we kind of still are there now with this sort of idea where we have a chain of being with humans at the top as the possessors of an exclusive non-animal substance, whether that is our soul still in our belief system or whether that is our special kind of mind. And with that, of course, comes a value judgment. That it is in our spiritual part of us that our true being, our true value resides. And the animal bit doesn't really know what it's doing. It's just sort of carrying the good part of us around. And with the things that we fear, of course, those things happen to the animal. So it's the animal that gets injured. It's the animal that gets a disease is the animal that will die. But the important special part of us will be saved. Now, we're living in quite an extraordinary time. I work within bioethics, so I'm actually not a scientist. Thank you very much, Helen. But I, I, I take that as a compliment, that hopefully my, my grasp on science is, is pretty good. I, what, I do more philosophy of science, actually, and I work within bioethics. So. Uh, um, I work at the Nuffield Council on Bioethics, which is our national bioethics body, and we have to deal with things like CRISPR and those sorts of frontier technologies. We really, really are living in an extraordinary time where the capacity to engineer the animal part of ourselves is at an unprecedented level. And we sort of see that at the coalface a bit. And we've got lots of people who've taken this sort of idea that we can somehow save ourselves, take ourselves out of this animal part, who are trying to engineer it. So in transhumanism, for instance, there's the idea now that we can either try and engineer the actual body to get it to do what we want it to do, to live for longer, to live for better, to stay young forever, to reproduce for longer, and to uh, avoid illness. Or, even better, we get rid of the animal altogether, and we sort of just take the thoughts out and we upload them into a machine that can live forever. And it sounds crazy, doesn't it? But all of our leading, richest men and our largest companies in the world are all working right now on things like brain-machine interfaces, for instance, and life extension projects in order to try to engineer the animal, or to extract that special human substance out of us. And when it comes to the rest of the living world, of course, this sort of idea is disastrous. Because essentially, you are saying that being animal isn't where the real value resides. And if you're also saying only human beings have this special other substance, this is human exceptionalism as an idea, then it means all other beings have only minimal value or no value really at all. And that's, of course, a disastrous idea if you happen to be an elephant or a gorilla or even the pet dog. It's, it's not a good position to be in. And the extraordinary thing is, is that we don't have any evidence for why that should be the case. Not, not when we really sort of screw down and drill down into it. We are remarkable, we are exceptional, but exceptional doesn't necessarily mean better. 
And when it comes to how we've related to our own bodies, we find that we can push away the things that really matter, our physical being and how important our physical being is to our own lives. Something that has been really interesting sort of quite recently, probably in the last 20 years or so in, in the field of psychology, is that they've started to see that actually those threats that I talked about can push us to favour the idea that we're not really animals. So there's this study that was done. I mean, there's loads of these studies. Some are better than others, I'm not going to lie. But, and some are, haven't been as reproduced as well as they could be. But, but there's lots of data from lots of different cultures now. There's one study, I'll give you an example, by Jamie Goldenberg, where she takes two essays. And one essay says, um, OK, you know, um, we're all animals, but humans are uniquely unique. We're uniquely special. And the other title says, OK, you know, we're, we're pretty special animal, but in most important ways, we're just like all of the rest of the animals. And using a disgust measure developed by uh, Jonathan Haidt and others, they exposed one set of participants to this, um, to this, to this threat, to this disgust measure. And the participants that were exposed to it favoured the exceptionalist essay over the non-exceptionalist essay. My, there's loads of these sorts of studies. My favourite one is Wrangler Jeans. So this is a real Wrangler Jeans advert. And this is done by, actually by a marketing research uh, uh, study. Now, in this advert, um, you've got like humans in jeans. I don't know why they thought this would sell their jeans. But anyway, in jeans, like crawling out of swamps and things like that. Anyway, in the study, they, faked, they made a fake advert that said, we aren't animals. And again, they used disgust measures, um, so things that might, at some level, make us think about pathogens and dangers and what have you in our mortality. And the groups, as you can probably guess, favoured the fake advert over the real advert. So, all of this really, in a, in a way for us, turns on the kind of mind that we have. And our mind has been shaped by the incredible group dynamics that we are an extraordinarily social primate. I mean, we're sort of hyper-social as a primate. Um, just think back again to my pounding heart. I'm hoping it's probably settled down a bit now. The, this device here was developed to um, sit on, on the inside of someone's wrist quite recently. And in trials that were done, I think about a year ago, it plays a relaxed heartbeat back. So you feel a relaxed heartbeat against you. And in, in public speaking anxiety trials, it was found to be really effective at calming the speaker down. I probably could have done with one <laughs> at the start of this. Um, all organisms are in the business of dealing with the threats that they face. It is threatening and difficult to be an animal. There is no two ways about it. And some of the ways that, that organisms and animals deal with threats are really remarkable. So again, very new science called social immunity which has mostly been done on eusocial insects. So this is like extreme group living, where you kind of become a superorganism. In, in certain species, for instance, certain species of termites, when they encounter a pathogen, they vibrate to warn other members in their group that, that they've got a pathogen, so that they don't get infect the rest of the colony. 
certain kinds of ants bury the dead um, in sort of pseudo graveyards again, so that there's uh, the, the dead are buried away and there can't be a risk of transmission of any danger to the rest of the group. And this is called social immunity. And there are sort of early studies coming through now of, of whether there's something like that beyond just use social insects. But what mammals in particular tend to use is social buffering. So you'll see monkeys like grooming hair and, and they don't just do that to pick parasites out, they actually just, they do it because it just kind of feels really nice and they make each other feel good. And lots of animals, particularly young animals, you know, mammals in particular, super tasty, um, face threats. Now, when an animal encounters a predator, let's say, it takes about two weeks for their body to recover because when our hearts are pounding, like my heart was pounding, it's not actually good for you. It's, if you sustain constant levels of stress like that on the body, it has real wear and tear. So it's in an animal's best interest to try and get back to homeostasis as quickly as possible. So what mammals tend to do is that they seek comfort from one another, so they huddle with one another. And this is social buffering. So we do that too. If we get really bad news, for instance, our body will cope with that stress simply by touching a close loved one We'll, we'll slow our heartbeat down, we'll get back to homeostasis faster. But the extraordinary thing about human beings is that we buffer ourselves with ideas. So ideas of the group. So we will favour the idea that we're on some sort of special trajectory. And when, when we face a, a threat, we prefer that idea, but we also prefer the idea of our group. And we'll start to increase the um, amount of contacts that we have with our group if we face a threat. We become very groupish, basically. So what if human exceptionalism has buffered us for the fears of, of um, the human condition and the animal condition for a long time, but now we're at the stage where that idea is starting to grow a bit threadbare, particularly as we face the biodiversity crisis, Anthropocene, and we kind of need a new value system for the rest of nature. Well, for me, the solution might lie in our animal nature. So that lovely affiliative thing that we get comes from um, when we are bonding with one another, how that works chemically in a body to counteract it is that we release cuddle hormones. And this is actually resurfacing the maternal child bonds. So if you think about um, oxytocin that gets released when uh, mothers and infants breastfeed, cuddling, bonding hormones are reserviced by all, animal, um, all adults later in life in all of the rest of our bonds. And this is found across mammals. So, for instance, that man there, when he's looking at his dog, the man will experience an oxytocin spike, and so will the dog. If you stroke the back of your horse, the horse will have an oxytocin spike, and so will the dog. And what's so remarkable about human beings, and it is our truly unique thing, is that we can extend that sort of generalizable ability to reservice group affiliative bonds and hormones to absolutely anything. There are crazy people who will love their rattlesnake in this world. Lots of people who will love their cats. <laughs> people can really love any other organism on the earth and that is a really remarkable human superpower and it's my great hope that if we could use perhaps a larger 
idea, like life on Earth as our buffer for what we fear, then we might end up with a better relationship, not just with ourselves and with the finite human condition, but also with the rest of life on the planet. Thank you for listening to HIF Player. Don't forget to rate and subscribe to this podcast. For more information about our arts charity and upcoming events, please visit harrogateinternationalfestivals.com.